Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with author and journalist Ken Wells, who is just about to release a new book entitled Gumbo Life, Tales from the Rue Bayou. The book is part memoir and part cultural and food history, delving into our tangled relationship with South Louisiana's best-known dish. Hey, Ken, how's it going today? It's a great day here in Chicago. Appreciate you calling. Of course. Glad to see that you're still up there writing about uh, things happening down home, or a history of down home, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, there are many days, especially during the Chicago winter, when I wished I lived there. So. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Um, to kind of start us, I'd love to share with our listeners a little paraphrased passage uh, from early on in the book. You write, for the vast majority of Gumbo Belt natives, gumbo has never been merely a dish. It's a cultural metaphor and anchor that both explains and bonds our food-centric part of the world. Gumbo, like blues and jazz, had come out of the crucible of a history that has been at turns uplifting and heroic, dark, and dispiriting. I love that extended passage uh, that you write because it kind of contains all those contradictions and interconnectedness of what gumbo is and what it means to us. And it's it's a very personal book for you as well, um, writing kind of part of a narrative or, or a memoir for you. Was that always the plan to kind of treat it as like a memoir as well as a cultural history? Well, to be honest, it went through several iterations. Uh, this actually started about 10 years ago when I was still with the Wall Street Journal and uh, I had an interview with an editor who was interested in a business book. And for some reason, we got talking about Louisiana and I started talking about my mama's gumbo. And she said, oh, seriously? Well, you know, why don't you write a book for us on that? And um, But I sort of put it aside because I was still very busy and still had a daytime job. And uh, at a point where it was kind of clear that I was ready to get out of daily journalism, we repitched the idea more along the lines of a sort of a personal history and, and kind of a travelogue, you know, through uh, what I call the gumbo mentality. You know, so that's that was basically the the beginning of the book. No, I could see that, and you know that that mentality is is connected with that history right there, and all these different focuses and and places where this dish came from, and how it's evolved into what it is today, and how it's still evolving. Um, what was kind of the most interesting aspect of that history of gumbo that kind of startled you when you found out about it? Well, you know, so my my mother's family, their toots is from Thibodeau, and there there's many toots in Thibodeau as there's Smiths in Ohio. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a big, and in my mother's generation, they all spoke what they considered to be Cajun French. In fact, they considered they thought of themselves as Cajuns, but it, it turns out that we are not Acadians. We we were Swiss Germans who came in the 1720s and ended up intermarrying with the Cajuns and stopped speaking German and, uh, at some point and began speaking Cajun French. So, you know, I, I, it goes back in my family, you know, just a, a very, very long way. I always thought, you know, of gumbo as a Cajun dish, yeah. as a Cajun invention. And it's pretty clear, based upon the research that I did, that the Cajuns did not indeed invent gumbo, but I think they get a great deal of credit for Gumbo's evolution, and particularly with the development of the roux, and especially the dark roux of Gumbo. But, you know, the shock to Gumbo world, you know, for about 50 years, the reference that put Gumbo in, in the Cajun camp was an 1804 uh, 
interviewed by a, a uh, French journalist traveling by your country named C.C. Robin, and he had gone to a Ball de Maison, a house party of somewhere between Baton Rouge and New Orleans on the Cajun coast, and had gumbo and saw them eating gumbo. And, and for a long time, that stood as sort of the, you know, the reference. And everyone, well, it's got to be a Cajun dish. And then a, a, a woman who has been doing incredible research in slave genealogy um, had been sleuthing through a New Orleans case involving runaway slaves back in 1764. And holy cow, she finds this reference to uh, Africans cooking filet gumbo in the French Quarter in 1764, which is about the time the Cajuns were starting to arrive. Um, now, of course, there's no recipe for the, for this gumbo, but when you do further research, it's kind of clear that the West Africans, the Simagambians, who were the main you know cadre of people who came uh, in bondage had an incredible knowledge of, of these okra and rice stews, very spicy stews they cooked back in Africa. And so it seems kind of clear to me that that it probably makes sense that the early template for at least New Orleans Creole gumbo were these probably African okra and rice stews. And by the way, you know, the the Bantu dialect word for okra is gumbo. Yeah. So it's 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 kind of um you know that that's it's pretty obvious that that's where you know gumbo got its name. Now, of course, you know there is this strange little sneaky alternative explanation because filet, which goes into gumbo, uh, you know, which is ground sassafras leaves, is called by the Native Americans who had been pounding it and then selling it on the markets in colonial Louisiana for you know years. It's called combo. K-O-M-B-O. Hmm. You know, sounds like gumbo. <laughs> but, but you know, part of the problem is that while now we have found these multiple references to just called gumbo in the historical stacks, no one has ever been able to find a reference to a dish called combo. So I think it's pretty clear that the um, those early gumbos were based upon the African template. And, of course, you know, here's, here's the other thing. The 1901 uh, uh, Picayune cookbook, you know, the forerunner of the Times-Picayune, mm-hmm. They published nine gumbo recipes, and in the preface it says these are recipes that could go back 200 years to the very founding of Louisiana. And what really startled me is that only two of those nine gumbos had roux in them, using a roux, you know, which is basically you know, flour browned in oil. Mm-hmm. Flash forward to today, go try to find a gumbo made without a roux. You know, it's, it's um, I mean, I, I ate gumbo in 60 different restaurants all over Louisiana, and I don't think I've, I ate one that did not have, did not start with a roux. Yeah. And and also, that's the way my mother cooked it, and my grandmother cooked it, and her mother cooked it. And among the Cajuns, you, you know, roux gumbo was unheard of. In fact, it was kind of blasphemy. You yeah. Know, it, it can't be, you know. But so, so that, that's what was so shocking to me is that, in, in fact, you know, these early gumbos did not have roux, which would then further bolster the case that they were really sort of taken from the, uh, the template of these okra, spicy okra and rice stews that were being cooked back in Africa. So that that was that was totally startling to me. I, I thought that, that that was a revelation. And the interesting thing is that, you know, the the researcher who found this, found this back in the 90s, but she, she had no interest in gumbo. She, she was writing, she was trying to put sort of faces and name and some color, you know, into the lives of these people who had been largely forgotten, the slaves. Mm-hmm. 
and, and so the you know the gumbo thing was just a, a you know an odd off reference, and but but somehow a, a a food blogger in 2011 saw the videotape that she had done of of this court case, and there she is talking about gumbo in 1764, and of course the, then this went all over the blogosphere and, and caused quite a sensation. I can I can imagine, and it's so interesting. You know, she's looking for kind of identifying factors for this population that's that's been erased from history and here you find this like kind of side comment that is kind of this this dish defines south louisiana culture in some ways and to kind of have that being the origin of it um is really kind of interesting and unique and kind of like places a lot of things into question regarding you know how people identify themselves in south louisiana here well, and, that, and that's why I love it. You know, <laughs> you know, I think you know it's you know, and I, I think there will probably be some Cajuns who will be bitterly disappointed to learn that, you know, the Cajuns very likely did not invent gumbo. But my, my other theory is is the theory of the brew. And again, going back to this cookbook in 1901, where there are no bows and only two are cooked with brews, and then you fast forward to today and go find a gumbo in a restaurant. And in many homes, that's not cooked with, with roux. So it's it's pretty clear that the roux style has has come to dominate gumbo. And in my ma- mother's family, who consider themselves Cajuns, so, you know, they my mother cooked with a roux, my grandmother cooked with a roux. I'm pretty sure her grandmother cooked with a roux. So the Cajuns have a long, and I've talked to other Cajun families who have recipes going back to the 1820s, wow. and th- those are all roux-based recipes. So, so kind of sleuthing around the roux, and of course, the, there there are records. You know, the French had the roux. The, the French founders who came with their chefs, uh, they knew of the roux because there are mentions in French literature of the roux that are 600 years old. And the Cajuns in Nova Scotia had the roux because they cooked a dish called poutine, and which which employs a roux. But that roux, I've actually eaten. Po- Poutine, and I understand why they left it in the old country. Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get that. It's, it's, it's funny, you know. It, it's it's kind of even more funny because you know my my grandparents. If I had decided to cook a gumbo for them and put a roux in it, they would have looked at me like I was crazy uh, because they knew was seafood gumbo, and they had the shrimp and the crab in there, and you know it was very much that okra base or the soupy base, and they right, had nothing right. to do with the roux. Right. Yeah. Interesting. You know, and I found lots of people. You know, since then, who do cook with roux? But, but basically speaking, again, I, I ate gumbo in sixty different restaurants spread across fifteen Louisiana cities just yeah. to get a pretty good sample, and I don't think I ate a single gumbo that didn't have a roux. So I'm, I'm talking this over with a, a historian named Ryan Brasso, who, who is actually at Yale. He's a guy from Lafayette, and was asking him about what he knew about the roux, and he said. Do you know what the secret is? Do you know what the secret, you know, the, the development of the dark roux? you know what my theory is? And I said, no, I'm dying to hear it. What is it? He said, bear lard. Bear huh. lard. And I and went, wait, okay, back up. What about bear lard? He said, well, okay, just hear me out. Butter was basically non-existent in colonial Louisiana. You know, the, we, we didn't have dairies, you know, for, for the first 80 years. Yeah. The Germans finally... Vegetable oil really was not invented, you know, in mass until, you know, the late 1800s, as far as I was able to tell. So the the, the primary cooking fat in colonial Louisiana, in fact, you know, colonial America, were animal fats. And yeah. and in Louisiana and in parts of the South, the most ubiquitous animal fat was bear lard. 
and it turns out that their lard has a much higher smoke point than even, even other animal fats. And therefore, if you cook with bear lard, it would allow you to make a substantially darker roux than was possible with other kinds of animal fats. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, so I'm going, well, yeah, yeah, come on. I mean, really, was there that much bear lard? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, guys, well, you know, you know, uh, I'm, I'm still doing research. So I, I start doing my own research. And, and dang, there, there, there's a town, there's a town in Arkansas called Oil Trough, Arkansas. And it's on the White River. And if you go read both the Wikipedia entry and then the official Arkansas tourism website, and, and you look up oil trough, well, it turns out that around the early 1800s, that area of the White River had a huge surplus of bear, and there were a lot of bear hunters, and they harvested hundred, literally hundreds of bears. They rendered the fat, the, the, the lard, put it in big oak barrels, shipped it down the White River to where? New Orleans. <laughs> it's not great. It's not great. So, so clearly, you know, somebody down there, and most likely the Cajuns, you know, were cooking with bear lard and making their roux out of bear lard, and hence we have the you know evolution of the dark roux, and um, and especially when you look at what I call the Cajun prairie, you know, the, the Lafayette and <clears throat> you know that that area in southwest Louisiana, south of I ten, that roux is you know is it tends to be you know really 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 dark roux and. So, so one of the theories now in in my book is that you know this you know, that that bear lard played a significant role in the evolution of the room. Um, and, and here's the other funny thing, you know, I have some, I have some bear lard. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I got some, <laughs> and and I'm, I'm I'm trying to get it to Louisiana. It's, it's kind of tricky because I'm not sure I can carry it on the plane. Because you know it would be more than three ounces, and they would confiscate it, and then I would be heartbroken. <laughs> but um, but I'm trying to get it to Louisiana and, and cook a, a bear lard roux gumbo to test this theory. And, and there are two theories, right? Can we really make a super dark roux, which would be one of the things? And then yeah. what the hell will it taste like? <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in that because you know I know that you're always seeking after that high smoke point, and I've used a bunch of different oils in my own creation of the roux. But I'd be very interested to hear about your bear lard experiments. Well, you know, so so I, I, I've actually have done some some sleuthing. I got my bear lard from uh, the guy who runs Bear Hunter magazine. <laughs> and he's, a, he's a bear hunter, and and I got it because I explained to him this theory. You know, and he 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 was just, oh my God, this is so great. You know, so what a great thing you know to happen for bears. <laughs> uh, but you know, he he has this, and when I found him, and I went on his website, he has this rapturous description of when you see a big slab of bear fat, it, it's redolent of the oak and deciduous forests of eastern Arkansas. <laughs> well, it turns out that, yeah, what bear lard tastes like is, is basically the last thing the bear ate, you know. So yeah. if, if, this, if this bear indeed was, you know, gorging on acorns and sweet berries, the, the lard ought to be very sweet and, 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 and good. But if you know if the bear was eating carrion, yeah. <laughs> or or salmon, <laughs> or, or fish, then it might not be so great. It's so, true. Um, Very we'll interesting see. notes there. <laughs> no, we'll we'll see what happens. That, that's so. kind of fascinating, and I know um, a lot of the history of 
of, of Rue and its incorporation in modern times has been the work of um, chefs like Paul Prudhomme. And, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's that's tied into uh, what you call the, the gumbo diaspora, where this once kind of like termed peasant dish was made to be um, an ad- identifying factor of what Louisiana is and what Louisiana cuisine is. Could you talk a little bit about that diaspora and just kind of like how you've seen it in your travels since leaving Louisiana? Yeah, you know, well, as I say in the book, in 1975, when I went off to grad school to Columbia, Missouri, and I'd never been to Missouri, so I had no idea what Missouri people ate. <laughs> uh, you know, they had no concept of gumbo. One one person thought it was some subset of voodoo. You know, they had no they had no idea. And if you wanted gumbo, you know, you had to cook it yourself. Um, and then later, sometime probably around 2002, I took a cross-country trip. Well, actually, I took a car trip from Minnesota and the headwaters of the Mississippi River all the way down to New Orleans. And I began to discover gumbo. And my theory then was that it had begun to spread. And it wasn't good. It wasn't. There was no good gumbo <laughs> in there. But, but but you could you know it, there was gumbo in, in name only. Um, but but word had started to leak out. Um, and then you know then fast forward yeah you, you know you you have what I call the the gumbo missionaries like Papadome and uh, John False, you know who as they begin to see an interest you, you know and, and the other part of this equation is you, you know it, it was the breakout of, of Louisiana music Cajun and Zydeco, mm-hmm. and then really the the the, the explosion of tourism to New Orleans and to the gumbo belt that really happened. You know, beginning in the mid to late seventies. I mean, look, Jazz Fest in nineteen seventy had three hundred people there or five hundred people there, and now it gets a million people there. Yeah. There, there were forty-seven million visitors to Louisiana last year, and, and in nineteen seventy, there were probably seven million. You know, <laughs> and, and part of this is food-driven. I mean, you know, they come and they eat, and they go, "Holy cow, what is this stuff?" I mean, yeah. it's really, you know, it's really pretty amazing. Um, and, and so everybody has, you know, great stories. You know, I mean, you know, Paul Prudhomme sets up on the Tony Upper West Side of New York and starts serving gumbo and all these other great creations. And the lines are six blocks long. And the health mounties come in and see flies in the temporary kitchen and threaten to shut him down. And Mayor Edcock comes forward and says, that's bullshit. <laughs> you can't, you're not going to set this guy down. I love his gumbo too much, you know. So it's... You know, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy that you suddenly have these these spectacular politicians intervening on behalf of the Louisiana chefs just so they could keep the gumbo truck going. Um, and that's what people knew. You know, we were on to something. I mean, it's just, you know, if our food, and, and, you know, and again, the, the great thing about our area is that it's not just gumbo, but, you know, we we have invented a way of cooking, the only truly authentic sort of regional cuisine in America and if you do these dishes with love and care and just pay attention, you know, they almost never fail. And this is what people are realizing. You know, three days ago, I had uh, gumbo in a uh, restaurant in Chicago called Heaven on Seven. And I went in, and it's owned by a Greek family. Mm-hmm. And they've been, they've, been, they've been running this Cajun restaurant in Chicago for 20 years, and, and the gumbo is pretty good. It's not, it's not you know, it's not my mama's. Yeah. It might not even be mine, but it you know it is it is gumbo. So I, I asked, so, so what, what's why? And the woman behind the counter says, well, you know, my father went down to New Orleans, fell in love with the food, called Paul Prudhomme one day, and Paul Prudhomme called him back, 
and, and he said to Paul Prudhomme, can I come and watch you cook gumbo? And Paul Prudhomme said, yeah. Oh, wow. So the guy from Chicago, a Greek guy from Chicago, you know, goes to New Orleans and spends two, spends two days with Paul Prudhomme learning how to make a roux, and, and he comes back and is running this highly successful Cajun restaurant in Chicago. And that's how it happens. I mean, that, that, that's one way that it happens, that people just fall in love with the food and then just have this yearning to recreate it and make people happy so it's true and you know it, it's really interesting to kind of see that 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 spreading um there was a great article in the new york times recently by um our own journalist brett anderson writing about I saw it, yeah yeah the, the the evolution of gumbo and i know many people get uh, offended when when things are changed from what they recognize as their gumbo or as a part of their culture's gumbo but he makes really good points in there about um, this is a dish, and you do as well, about this continual evolution of the dish and what it inspires and what it keeps. And I, I know that the large Vietnamese populations here are starting to add their own takes onto that. And, um, you know, the Indian restaurants here are, you know, making it into curries. And there are some people that aren't quite comfortable with that, but there are other people's kind of adding that on. And it's really interesting how it's uh, bringing people together and, and continually evolving in that way. Well, yeah, and, and look at the, you know, like the, the, the Mexican style food, you know, in, in places like New Orleans and even Homa, where mm -hmm. I grew up, where, where they're beginning to blend Cajun and traditional Mexican cooking. And it's fabulous. I mean, it's, you know, I had crawfish tacos, you know, at, at, in Lafayette. And, um, I mean, they were just, I mean, it was just wonderful example of, of you know, fusion cooking. Well, you know, Chef False, John False says, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have to be careful careful because we don't want to put the food in the museum you know it, it yeah. you know it, 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 if it's going to stay relevant it has to continue to, to change but you also don't want to throw out the traditions and that sort of stuff um, and it's a hard balance because i've had friends i remember sharing that article and one of my friends was like you know i'm excited about some of these things but you know in these gumbos that are represented here i don't see my grandmother's from the seventh ward's gumbo and like is there a place right. for that one yes well i mean yeah it's, it's kind of what I, another way of looking at it is what i call the gumbo identity crisis you yeah know, that is you know, there, there was kind of a clear mark at one point you know, generalities, but, you know, there was kind of the New Orleans, see the bottom of the bowl, Creole gumbos. There were the gumbos from the bayous, like my mother cooked, that are, sort of had a medium roux, mostly cooked with seafood and okra. When they, when my mother cooked chicken and sausage, she would never put okra in her chicken and sausage yeah. gumbo. And then out in Lafayette, you had these really super dark roux, and sometimes these kind of stand the spoon up in the bowl gumbos. But... That's changing. I mean, you know, people, and, and you know, and there, there is, there is gumbo chauvinism. I mean, you know, I, I ran into people in New Orleans who go, I would never eat gumbo in Lafayette. And I met people in Lafayette who said, oh, I would never eat gumbo in New Orleans. They don't know how to cook gumbo. You know, so, you know there, are, there are these gumbo chauvinists. But my view is that, you know, having then traveled all around the state and eating gumbo, and, and, and you know, I, I got some mediocre gumbos, you know, in, in certain restaurants, but I got a lot of really great gumbo, too, you know, and, and a lot of it was just really interesting and not precisely traditional, but still, you know, you know nicely done. I, I'm, I'm going to try pretty soon a Tex-Mex gumbo uh -huh. with chorizo and jalapenos. I mean, why not? Just, and, you know, if it's horrible, I'll never make it again. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. It's, it's if you the things that don't last. I mean, the good thing about food is that um, if the ingredients are available, foods will last because people will like them. And and there are certain aspects of taste and and the ingredients that you use that really make uh, people into them. But the things that don't taste good aren't going to last. Um, right. Which kind of leads me to um, not who, but 
What do you think makes the best gumbo? What I think makes the well, first, you know, the the, the primary ingredient in gumbo is love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, seriously, it's like uh, it, the way that my mother taught me how to make gumbo. You know, I mean, it was this just sort of boundless patience, especially about getting the roux right, you know, and, you know, sort of talking me through it and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, and my preference is to, is, is, is gumbos with roux. I, you know, I have a sister-in-law who cooks a, a, a delicious roux gumbo, but yeah. she uses so much okra that I find it's too sweet in a strange way. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, I have, I just have very eclectic, I have an eclectic gumbo palate, and uh, and uh, as I was saying, there's I didn't run across much that I did not like, and where I didn't like it, I just felt like like it, it was cooked by people who were not paying attention. You know, yeah. they, they they just did not, you know, they, they they missed somehow they missed the roux and they missed the spices and um, and it was rather bland uh, and prosaic, you know. Um, but but I you know I, I was impressed in the main with with the stuff that I ate. Um, and, yeah. um, and, and you know, then sitting. I mean, I said in the book, but sitting in Commander Palace's kitchen, and you know, sort of gobsmacked as, as you know, Tori Maffeo begins to put, you know, foie gras in the gumbo. It's like, whoa, wait, wait, <laughs> time out, time out. You know, my, my mama is rolling, rolling in a grave. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you know, it, it was. I mean, I, seriously, it was seriously good. You know, it was serious. I mean, you can imagine how rich it would have been. It yeah. really was that rich. You know? um, and it's the kind of thing that I wish I had a cup of in my freezer so I could take it out and, and see if it still tastes the same way. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I can see that. I just that. have to go back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's lovely. And, you know, you're talking about love and the gumbo. One of my favorite aspects of cooking it is the, the long room making process. You know, I, you I, could, I could blast it and probably be done in 15 minutes if I wanted to. Yep. But I, I love having that beer. Yeah. I love the stirring process. I love the kind of care you have to put into making sure it turns just right and watching the evolution of color, right? You know that that's the Zen part of the gumbo making. You know, to me, and that, you're absolutely right. And you know, you know my, my favorite root quote was interviewing Marcel Biavenu, who teaches at the John Falls Culinary Institute and has written her own book about gumbo. But she said, you know, you know, you know how long it took my mama to cook her room? Three martinis. <laughs> <laughs> and that is quantifiable time right there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. I, you know, I love a mama attitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ken, uh, I know our, our time is running short, but, but before you go, I did want to ask you, um, uh, what are you reading right now? And also, I know you're going to be coming to Louisiana soon for this book. Uh, and what are some places and dates people should be putting on their calendar to, to come and see you? Well, yeah, let me deal with the dates first. I'll yeah. be there Monday, March 11th at Octavia Books. And I believe the event is 6 to 7.30, but you might – it's not upon their website yet. So, I, And then on Saturday, March 30th, I'll be at the Tennessee Women's Festival in New Orleans um, on a panel about memoir writing. Oh, fantastic. And talking about the Gumbo Book, too, as well. So. Oh, cool. Oh, excited for that. Um, and then what – what are some books that you've been reading or articles that have been keeping you busy? Well, you know, here's a funny thing. You know, when, when I'm actually in the middle also of, of trying to finish a novel, which is based in Louisiana. Oh, wow. And when I, when I am writing 
new novel or, or working on other books, I, I kind of go off reading in a strange way. Yeah. But but I, but I do read. I mean, I do read magazines, and, and you know, like I, I don't know if you're familiar with Garden and Gun. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. But, but you know, so you know, I I, I pour over that to two of my good friends, Julia Reed and Roy Blunt Jr. write for that magazine, and it's always fun. You know, I read my Louisiana cooking magazine religiously. You know, just because I, I want to kind of stay up. Yeah. On, on, you know, on, on what's what's going on. Um, but that's about it for now. And, and you know, once I'm done with the novel, I will then go back to sort of devouring other kinds of books. Well, that's good. Do you have a a name for for the the novel or anything you can reveal about it yet, or is it still in the? Uh, in no, the no, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it it is tentatively called um, Olivia and the Swamp Boy. Okay, and it's it's a it's a young adult survival no- novel set in the Great Atchafalaya Swamp. Okay, is there any uh, bear lard involved? Well, you know, I'm thinking about stirring some in. You know, that's <laughs> <what I mean. laughs> well, uh, Ken, I'm excited for that then, and uh, I wanted to thank you again for coming on. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.